Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3. Obscure, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Southern gentleman, Michael Ian Black. Not two episodes ago, we began with a massacre, and now here we are again with another massacre, this time in Texas, an elementary school, not unlike the Sandy Hook situation what is it, nine years ago, ten years ago now at this point? I don't know. And once again, I have taken to my soapbox. I can do little else when these events occur. I mean, I mean, I can literally do little else. Like, I just find myself compelled to, uh, to do what I do. Uh, I don't want to dwell on it. Don't want to spend much time on it, but it is top of mind for me. And when things are top of mind, uh, I have no choice but to express them on this podcast and in this format. Um, I'm just uh, just sort of sick, riven with, what's the word? You know, I don't want to say grief. It's not my grief. There is a kind of collective national grief that happens when these events occur. But I don't want to overstate my own emotions about it because there are people suffering real grief this evening as I record this. But, um, you know, there is a there is a kind of collective trauma that judders through the nation when these events happen. And I do think it jutters through the entire nation, not just those of us who wish to actually do something about the problem. It is inescapable to me, the conclusion that I have reached, that um, some people just don't want to do anything about it. A fairly large and vocal minority of this country simply don't want to do anything about it. They, I mean, they would if they felt like it, if they could end it without having to give up anything, make any kind of sacrifice, inconvenience themselves in any way, shape, or form, then yes, they would be happy for these events to end. But... If uh, any burden is placed upon them, or even if the fear of burden is placed upon them, then they would prefer to maintain the status quo. Some of these people, many of these people, I suspect, support the former president, whose island home I visited this past 
a couple of days, I was in, or on, I should say, Palm Beach Island, which is where Mar-a-Lago is located. I was invited to moderate a book event with my friend Megan McCain. She has a book out. We had a I, I, it wasn't a debate in any way, shape, or form. She asked me to come down and, uh, you know, just sort of moderate an interview with her. So I did that. And, you know, inevitably we did get into some discussion about things that we weren't on the same page about, but we did have a good time and we disagreed agreeably about certain things, but for the most part, we got along great, as we always do. We stayed at the Breakers, uh, which is a magnificent hotel built originally in the late 19th century. It burned down a couple of times. Its current incarnation was constructed, I think, in, you know, 1919, 1920, 25, somewhere in that area. And it is just over-the-top, ornate, intricate architecture, beautifully maintained, gorgeous. Everything about it is just uh, dressed to the nines. The lawn is trimmed with with, with the kind of symmetry your pubes could only dream about. Uh, Everything about it, you know, just tip-top. And we didn't have to pay for the room, but, uh, you know, anything we purchased there, we had to pay for, we had to go out of pocket for, and my God, everything, you just paid through the nose for every goddamn thing. I mean, we sat down, we had, the the wife and I, we had a a cocktail each, Uh, we each had a spicy dragon roll, and two pieces each of hambachi sushi. You want to guess what the total bill was? Service included, $177, American dollars outrage. I was outraged. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I will say I did work out at the just the most beautiful gym I've ever worked out in in my life. And not, not, not that I've worked out in that many gyms. I mean, look at me. You know I haven't. But uh, this gym was on the second floor of the spa. And you walk in and it, it, it was almost like you, it was almost like walking into uh, like a Westworld gym. You know, not the old West part, but the future part where maybe where they had the like robots workout because everybody there was like in like black workout clothes and and just beautifully sculpted and everything was gleaming and uh, it looked out over the ocean. Just gorgeous. But that kind of wealth, that Palm Beach Island wealth is uh, it's alienating. That's the that's the thing about it. It's just you, you you're among all of that money and it just feels alienating and isolating and and you know, I don't want to say obscene. It doesn't feel obscene to me in the sense like I wasn't outraged by it, but you just it, it just feels like somewhat otherworldly and I remember once, I don't even remember who I was talking to. Somebody had been on the yacht of the Oracle guy, whatever that guy's name is, like, you know, one of the biggest billionaires in the world, you know, and somebody had been on a party on his yacht, right? He's a billionaire. He's got, you know, one of the finest yachts in the world. And the thing that struck me about it was whoever I was talking to said, you, he said, said, you can't believe it. There's a full-size basketball court on the yacht. And I remember thinking to myself, is that all there is? 
Larry Ellison, that's his name. If you're like, if you're Larry Ellison and you've got all the money in the world and you can get anything you want and you buy this yacht and the best thing that can be said about it, ultimately, is there's a full-sized basketball court on it. I just thought to myself, well, who gives a shit? Like, who really gives a shit? You know? Like, I can play basketball on my boat. Not half court, full court. And that's kind of it. Like, that's kind of what money can buy you in the end. You know, a basketball court on a boat. And if that's what you want to chase, and that's what you dream about, and that's that's as far as you can take it, and if you wanted to devote your life to to obtaining that, God bless. But the whole thing sounded rather hollow to my ears. Now look, I live in a nice house, a haunted mansion here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, in a good neighborhood, and uh, you know I'm I've I've done okay for myself. But you know, like living in this city, like you're experiencing the world. You know, you're experiencing the highs and lows of the world. You're experiencing everything and everybody. You're not insulated from the world, and it's a much better way to live. I think it's 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 you're just among. You're just in humanity, you know? I just can't quite imagine living in the bubble of an enclave like that, where every single person you meet is either paid to be nice to you or is your competitor and is covetous of you or you're covetous of them. You know, it's just ugly. It just felt kind of ugly. Not that it wasn't fun. We had a good time. Don't get me wrong. The Breakers, gorgeous. If you get a chance to spend some time there, if you don't have to pay for it, absolutely go. I wouldn't stay more than a couple days. A couple days was enough for us. You know, I couldn't wait to get back and see what was going on with Heathcliff and Catherine and Edgar Linton and all my friends there at Thrushcross Grange, just down the moor from Wuthering Heights, you know, because that's where humanity's happening. That's where the tumult is occurring. That's where chaos lives. When last we met, there, there was a little hullabaloo between Catherine and Heathcliff and Edgar. Edgar had basically just thrown Heathcliff out of the house, had, had, said, had said, said, you're, you're, you're poisoned, get out of my house. And then he went to summon two henchmen to help throw him out. Well, Catherine followed him down the hallway, locked the door behind him, and is basically saying, I hope Heathcliff beats the shit out of you because you, you thought badly of me and you thought badly of Heathcliff and blah, 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 you know. Edgar, I was defending you and yours, and I wish Heathcliff may flog you sick for daring to think in evil thought of me. And that's where we left it last time. So, we have uh, begun, we began this episode with man's inhumanity to man, and then we continued on through Palm Beach Island with uh, man's what? Uh, what, what, what is that even? Man's inability to, I don't know, be satisfied? And now we're back to man's inhumanity too. Man, as we pick up with chapter... Well, geez, what chapter is it? Chapter 11? Chapter 11, Wuthering Heights. So, she has just threatened the flogging. It did not need the medium of a flogging to produce that effect on the master. He tried to wrest the key from Catherine's grasp, and for safety, she flung it into the hottest part of the fire. <laughs> so she's locked the door. She said, you're not getting the key. 
and then she threw it in the fire. So now they're both locked in there. I mean, you know, what are they going to do? Somebody's going to have to knock, knock, uh, knock the door down. Whereupon Mr. Edgar was taken with a nervous trembling, and his countenance grew deadly pale. For his life, he could not avert that access of emotion. Mingled anguish and humiliation overcame him completely. He leant on the back of a chair and covered his face. Oh, heavens! In old days this would win you knighthood, exclaimed Mrs. Linton. We are vanquished, we are vanquished. Heathcliff would as soon lift a finger at you as the king would march his army against a colony of mice. Cheer up, you shan't be hurt. Your type is not a lamb, it's a sucking leveret. (laughs) She's awful. (laughs) You know, this is what I need to cheer me up. You know, look, we're met with... Uh, man's human- inhumanity to man. And what am I met with here? Uh, man's inhumanity to man, but in a fun way, you know, in a fun, lighthearted, bad cap, horrible way, because it's made up. It's made up story stuff. And that's what we turn to, isn't it? Stories are our balm. I wish you joy of the milk-blooded coward, Kathy, said her friend. I compliment you on your taste. And that is the slavering, slivering, wait, shivering, wait, what? I compliment you on your taste. And that is the slavering, shivering thing you preferred to me. I would not strike him with my fist, but I'd kick him with my foot and experience considerable satisfaction. Is he weeping or is he going to faint for fear? The fellow approached and gave the chair on which Linton rested a push. He'd better have kept his distance. My master quickly sprang erect and struck him full on the throat, a blow that would have leveled a slighter man. So Edgar Linton standing up and knocking him right in the Adam's apple. Edgar Linton in the red corner, in the teal trunk, standing at five foot seven, 135 pounds. Edgar Linton delivers a right hook to the throat of Heathcliff. It took his breath for a minute, and while he choked, Mr. Linton walked out by the back door into the yard, and from thence to the front entrance. There, you've done with coming here, cried Catherine. Get away now, he'll return with a brace of pistols and half a dozen assistants. If he did overhear us, of course, he'd never forgive you. You've played me an ill turn, Heathcliff, but go, make haste. I'd rather see Edgar at bay than you. Do you suppose I'm going with that blow burning in my gullet, he thundered. By hell no. I'll crush his ribs in like a rotten hazel nut before I cross the threshold. If I don't floor him now, I shall murder him sometime. So, as you value his existence, let me get at him. He is not coming, I interposed, framing a bit of a lie. There's the coachman and the two gardeners. You'll surely not wait to be thrust into the road by them. Each has a bludgeon, and Master will, very likely, be watching from the parlor windows to see that they fulfill his orders. The gardeners and coachmen were there, but Linton was with them. They had already entered the court. Heathcliff, on second thoughts, resolved to avoid a struggle against three underlings. He seized the poker, smashed the lock from the inner door, and made his escape as they tramped in. Mrs. Linton who was very much excited, bade me accompany her upstairs. 
She did not know my share in contributing to the disturbance, and I was anxious to keep her in ignorance. "'I'm nearly distracted, Nellie,' she exclaimed, throwing herself on the sofa. "'A thousand smith's hammers are beating in my head. Tell Isabella to, Isabella to shun me. This uproar is owing to her, and should she or anyone else aggravate my anger at present, I shall get wild. And Nellie, say to Edgar, if you see him again tonight, that I'm in danger of being seriously ill. I wish it may prove true. He has startled and distressed me shockingly. I want to frighten him. Besides, he might come and begin a string of abuse or complainings. I'm certain I should recriminate, and God knows where we should end. Will you do so, my good Nelly? You are aware that I am no way blamable in this matter. What possessed him to turn listener? Heathcliff's talk was outrageous after you left us, but I could soon have diverted him from Isabella, and the rest meant nothing. Now all is dashed wrong by the fool's craving to hear evil of self that haunts some people like a demon. Had Edgar never gathered our conversation, he would never have been the worse for it, really. When he opened on me, in that unreasonable tone of displeasure, after I had scolded Heathcliff till I was hoarse for him, I did not care hardly what they did to each other, especially as I felt that, however the scene closed, we should all be driven asunder for nobody knows how long. Well, if I cannot keep Heathcliff for my friend, if Edgar will be mean and jealous, I'll try to break their hearts by breaking my own. That will be a prompt way of finishing all, when I am pushed to extremity, but it's a deed to be reserved for a forlorn hope. I'd not take Linton by surprise with it. To this point, he had been discreet in dreading to provoke me. You must represent the peril of quitting that policy and remind him of my passionate temper, verging when kindled on frenzy. <laughs> I wish you could dismiss that apathy out of your countenance and look rather more anxious about me. She is a piece of work, is she not? None of this is my fault. If only he hadn't been listening to me shit-talking then none of this would have happened. And doesn't he know not to provoke me? I'm a demon. I'm just a horrible goblin when provoked. And you would be well to remind him of that, Miss Nelly, that I am a terror. And he's been very good at keeping my temper in check, but I worry that if he does not behave himself now, that I will be forced to be a dervish. That's basically what she's saying. She is a nightmare. My God. <sighs> Who does she remind me? I mean, you know, she's like, uh, I think I've said it before, you know, she's like Nellie on Little House on the Prairie, just a spoiled little brat. Just a horrid little brat. But, you know, Nellie was an adolescent. Catherine is now a young maiden. I'm not even young so much for the time. I mean, you know, she's in her 20s at this point, married to an establishment figure, strutting around Thrushcross Grange like a peacock. <sighs> a peahen, I suppose, not a peacock. A peahen. She doesn't have all the, f the, uh, the plumage, but she certainly has the attitude. All right, let's take, a, let's take a quick break, and then we'll do a short second half, and, you know, be back in a moment here on Obscure.
Back in Obscure, I'm in fine fettle as usual. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, just, just getting through the day, as they say, just trying to quell my own temper, trying to soothe my own savage beast, as it were, which will be reawakened, no doubt, in the next day or so when there's another mass shooting. But in the meantime, what do we have? This joyful outburst from Catherine, this wonderful soliloquy, almost an aria of hand-washing, or hand-wringing, and, and well, hand-washing too, washing herself of any blame, all uh, in an effort to absolve herself of playing any part in the tension and the, uh, 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 the, 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 the fisticuffs that have occurred, brief though they may have been, between Linton and Heathcliff. Linton socked him right in the throat, right in the throat. You got him good. He's down for the count. Didn't think Linton had him in it. Had it in him, did you? You didn't think it, but he did. He's, yeah, he's starting to rise now. Edgar Linton's starting to rise as the hero of this piece, the moral center, though he was just a prissy little lad when first we met him. Now he is the man of the estate and is behaving as such. So uh, Catherine has just said, it's not my fault, Nellie, and why are you looking at me like that? (laughs) The stolidity with which I received these instructions was no doubt rather exasperating, for they were delivered in perfect sincerity, but I believed a person who could plan the turning of her fits of passion to account beforehand might, by exerting her will, manage to control herself tolerably even while under their influence, and I did not wish to frighten her husband, as she said, and multiply his annoyances for the purpose of serving her selfishness. Therefore, I said nothing when I met the master coming towards the parlor, but I took the liberty of turning back to listen whether they would resume their quarrel together. He began to speak first. "'Remain where you are, Catherine,' he said." without any anger in his voice, but with much sorrowful despondency. Oh, well then let me, let me, let me, uh, let me re, reread it. Remain where you are, Catherine. I think that, that there is a little bit of sorrowful despondency there. I shall not stay. I am neither come to wrangle nor be reconciled, but I wish just to learn whether, after this evening's events, you intend to continue your intimacy with, oh, for mercy's sake, interrupted the mistress, stamping her foot. For mercy's sake, let us hear no more of it now. Your cold blood cannot be worked into a fever. Your veins are full of ice water, but mine are boiling, and the sight of such chillness makes them dance. To get rid of me, answer my question, persevered Mr. Linton. You must answer it. And that violence does not alarm me. I have found that you can be as stoical as anyone when you please. Will you give up Heathcliff hereafter, or will you give up me? It is impossible for you to be my friend and his at the same time, and I absolutely require to know which you choose. I require to be left alone, exclaimed Catherine furiously. I demand it. Don't you see I can scarcely stand? Edgar, you you leave me. 
She rung the bell till it broke with a twang. I entered leisurely. <laughs> it was enough to try the temper of a saint. Such senseless, wicked rages. There she lay, dashing her head against the arm of the sofa and grinding her teeth so that you might fancy she would crush them to splinters. Oh, she's such a drama queen. Such a drama queen. Is she not so accustomed to getting her way when shaking her little furies that she cannot stand it when Edgar Linton finally summons his own resolve and says no more? She just doubles down on it. Doubles down on her own insolence to see how far it will get her because of course she cannot choose or she is unwilling to choose between Heathcliff and Edgar at least in this moment because she is comfortable there with Edgar and enjoys um, the hold she has on him and though she adores Heathcliff part of her nose she could not dominate him the way she has dominated her husband to this point, and that may be a severe blow to her ego. We'll see what she decides. Mr. Linton stood looking at her in sudden compunction and fear. He told me to fetch some water. She had no breath for speaking. I brought, so doubling down seems to work. I brought a glassful, and as she would not drink, I sprinkled it on her face. <laughs> In a few seconds, she stretched herself out stiff and turned up her eyes while her cheeks, at once blanched and livid, assumed the aspect of death. Linton looked terrified. There is nothing in the world the matter, I whispered. I did not want him to yield, though I could not help being afraid in my heart. She has blood on her lips, he said, shuddering. Oh, never mind, I answered darkly and I told him how she had resolved, previous in his coming, on exhibiting a bit of frenzy. I incautiously gave the account aloud, and she heard me, for she started up, her hair flying over her shoulders, her, air, her eyes flashing, the muscles of her neck and arms standing out preternaturally. I made up my mind for broken bones at least, but she only glared about her for an instant, and then rushed from the room. The master directed me to follow. I did, to her chamber door. She hindered me from going farther by securing it against me. As she never offered to descend to breakfast next morning, I went to ask whether she would have some carried up. No, she replied, peremptorily, 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 peremptorily. Let's say, let's say that, let's say it like that. The same question was repeated at dinner and tea, and again on the morrow after, and received the same answer. Mr. Linton, on his part, spent his time in the library, and did not inquire concerning his wife's occupations. Isabella and he had had an hour's interview, during which he tried to elicit from her some sentiment of proper horror for Heathcliff's advances but he could make nothing of her evasive replies, and was obliged to close the examination unsatisfactorily, adding, however, a solemn warning, 
that if she were so insane as to encourage that worthless suitor, it would dissolve all bonds of relationship between herself and him. End of chapter 11. So, Mr. Edgar Linton has got himself into a, a, a fine fettle of his own. He is drawing lines in the sand and saying to Catherine, it is him or me. To his sister, he says, it is him or me. He or I. And it is impossible to say at this point whom either will choose or who. I don't know. I've never known the difference between who or whom. I suppose I never will. And I don't care to learn. Thank you very much. But uh, we don't know what the resolution of either gal will be. Both apparently attracted to the bad boy. Both of them just entranced by the dark, handsome, brooding Heathcliff. Though he really seems to exhibit no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Other than, I suppose, a kind of brilliant intensity. And I suppose that in and of itself could be alluring, a kind of tractor beam of magnetism. One cannot help but be drawn to it. Like the hackneyed phrase goes, a moth to a flame, you may know it will singe you, if not burn you alive, and yet there you go. That is Heathcliff to these ladies, both of them drawn to him. And, you know, as readers, we find ourselves drawn to him as well. David, does, does, does any, I've known people like this, kind of magnetic figures, you know, that, that you're sort of fascinated with and by, and you sort of want their approval and their attention. I've known people like this. They have a kind of um, charisma, I suppose, a dark charisma that can be very appealing. You maybe want to thaw them out a little bit and feel yourself in the glow of their cold embers. Uh, you know, whatever heat that may emanate from them, you sort of wish to be warmed by because you know how sparing they are with it. I've, I've, I suppose I've met people like that in the past. But, you know, I feel like as you get a little older, you're sort of like, yeah, you know what? I don't have time for this shit. I don't, I, you're, you're not helpful to me. You're not what I need in my life. So be gone. Why don't you? But, uh, you know, one could certainly see a young Bronte scribbling a story like this and being fascinated by some Heathcliff in her life. I'm going to look up right now. Who was Heath? I'm, I'm on the uh, research machine. Who was Heathcliff based on? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, was there an actual person? Hmm. Heathcliff was based on Welsh Brunty, Patrick Bronte's adoptive grandfather an Irish cattle trader who often made trips to England. This is from The Real Heathcliff, an article from the New York Times in 1995. Or I, I suppose uh, this is a letter to the editor. 
I'll post this on the Patreon. But uh, Patrick Bronte's great-grandfather, Hugh Bronte, was an Irish cattle trader who often made trips to England. Returning from one of these voyages with his wife, he found a dark, ragged street urchin. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Whom the Bruntes took home and raised as their own son. So Brunty, obviously a different Bronte, you know, anglicized, I suppose, to Bronte. Named Welsh because they believed him to be of Welsh origin, the boy proved talented at cattle trading and became closer to Hugh Brunty than his own two sons, making Welsh an object of great jealousy on the part of the Brunty brothers. Welsh Brunty's history prefigures the story of Heathcliff in almost every respect. Driven out of the family, home by his jealous brothers after Hugh Brunty's death, he eventually took over the Brunty homestead and married the youngest daughter. So uh, maybe some foreshadowing there. I don't want to keep reading because then there'll be some spoilers. All of that to say that this does seem to mirror the story of Heathcliff to Brunty, Hugh Brunty, and Welsh, Welsh Brunty, Welsh Brunty. Um, all right, so there was an actual Heathcliff. It seemed too specific, does it? It seemed too specific, does it not, that there should not be some source material for this character? And just a, a, t- a couple click clicks of the keyboard gave us the information. So let us leave it there on this... Uh, Day of grief and mourning in America, one of many. We uh, had a little bit of an escape, a fun escape into this fine American novel, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. We will pick it up again, hopefully on sunnier days to come. But until then, I wish you all adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more Obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.